Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode five of You Don't Know Jack. I'm your host, Sarah Dimio, and I am here to give you a review of every single film in the career of Jack Nicholson. Today, we're moving into 1964, after the busy year that Jack had in 63. Not only did he appear in The Raven, The Terror, and had his first screenwriting credit with Thunder Island. But Jack and his wife of one year, actress Sandra Knight, had their daughter Jennifer in September of that year. And now speaking of The Raven, in our last episode, I had talked a little bit about The Witch's Dungeon in Bristol, Connecticut, with all its old horror and sci-fi props. I mentioned that I have a picture of myself gazing eye to eye with the head built for the head spinning scene in The Exorcist. Well, I made sure to post it on Facebook and Instagram. So if you're interested in seeing that, please be sure to follow You Don't Know Jack podcast on both. And since I started the Facebook and the Instagram, I've also periodically been reposting original Jack inspired artwork that I find online. The very first piece of art that I reposted was a beautiful painting of Jack as the Joker, painted onto a saw by a brilliant artist by the name of Dagmara Cialeca, and I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, and I apologize if I'm not. And I'd like to keep doing that, so occasionally on the social media pages, you might see a really cool painting or sculpture or something amazing that somebody came up with using Jack's image that I just wanted to show the world. And if you have a picture of something creative that you made or have a cool collection of Jack Nicholson pictures or memorabilia or whatever it may be, oh my God, share it with me. Maybe I can repose something of yours. I keep seeing new follows on the socials, and it gets me so jazzed to know that people are listening. And one more thing before we dive into our first film for today. I don't know if I ever mentioned the cover art for this podcast. Isn't it fabulous? The younger Jack and the older Jack back to back against the shining inspired background. And then you've got me photobombing down at the bottom. The artist who made that is a friend of mine, and her name is Nicole Francis, and she's incredible. And you should follow her on Instagram, too, at the Nixie Pixie. That's the underscore Nixie underscore Pixie. But now, on to 1964. Now that it's been about five years since Jack got his first feature film role, he's beginning to get work fairly consistently albeit if it's still in low-budget pictures. But here's what I've realized. There really is no clear-cut point to differentiate when a person has made it, quote-unquote, in Hollywood. Though most of us who are familiar with Jack's career know that his breakthrough role would come in another five years with Easy Rider, it's still not as if there's one definitive moment where all he was ever doing were B-movies and then All of that came to an end one day, and from that point on, it was only big-budget productions and Oscar wins, never to see another small indie project again. There's overlap in those two worlds on the way to success. And that brings us to our first movie for today, Ensign Pulver. Now, I need to point out, when I first mentioned this title at the end of our last episode, I pronounced it the way it's spelled— as Ensign Pulver, 
but I'll own it. That was incorrect. It's pronounced Ensign. The movie is actually a sequel to a 1955 comedy called Mr. Roberts, with Henry Fonda in the starring role as Mr. Roberts, and also featuring James Cagney as Captain Morton, William Powell as Doc, and Jack Lemmon as Ensign Pulver. The original film was based off the 1946 novel Mr. Roberts by Thomas Hegan, which was then turned into a Broadway play in 1948. The film, Mr. Roberts, that is, was nominated for three Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Sound Recording, and winning one of them, Best Supporting Actor for Jack Lemmon. So working off of the success of the first picture, Ensign Pulver began production under the working title Mr. Pulver and the Captain, directed and produced by Joshua Logan, screenplay by Peter S. Feebleman and Joshua Logan. The movie continues with the story of many of the characters from the original film, with the exception of Mr. Roberts, and with all the roles played by different actors, starring Robert Walker Jr. as Ensign Pulver, Burl Ives as Captain Morton, and Walter Matthau as Doc. Jack plays Dolan, a Navy Yeoman, meaning he performs administrative and clerical work. And according to what I read, Jack took it upon himself to assist the director, Josh Logan, with casting, which also made him sort of an unofficial assistant producer. And this is why Jack kept getting consistent work. It is that hustle that I keep talking about. So I had never seen this movie before last week. I had ordered the DVD from Amazon. It's part of the Warner Archive collection. And as the movie opens, we see the ship, the USS Reluctant, out at sea, as the sun is setting off in the distance. The crew are all seated together on deck, singing. Jack in that opening shot with the crew just off to the right. While the ship is at anchor by a tropical island, Ensign Pulver, who is laundry and morale officer, is tasked with picking up bottles of booze for the rest of the crew and sneaking it back onto the ship. As he's making his way back to the ship, he has what looked to me to be about six or more bottles hidden in a large brazier box. But as Pulver is coming back on deck, the captain, who is as much of a blowhard as they come, also appears on deck. Pulver is not the discreet type. He's waving at the crew, he's pointing to the box, all while they're trying to signal to him that the captain is right there. So Pulver gets up onto the deck, the giant brazier box in hand, and suddenly he's face to face with the captain. He tries to play it off, but poor Pulver, the captain makes him open the box and then toss each bottle overboard. In the next scene, we see members of the crew, including Dolan, starting to get rowdy as they play Monopoly. But then a letter arrives for one of the crewmen, John X. Bruno, played by Tommy Sands. 
This was a bit of a dark turn in an otherwise comedic movie. The letter states that his little girl, only 18 months old, drowned while in Coney Island. And I just thought, well, that's a bit of a gut punch. But it does turn out to be essential to the story. The rest of the crew gathers around Bruno, and they're encouraging him to ask the captain for leave. The captain's got to grant it to him. He can convince him, and even Dolan says to Bruno, Come on, you can do it. You're a con man. So Bruno, along with the doc, go down to see the captain. Bruno explains what happened, and that he's got to be with his wife. And the captain says, No, go back to your duties. So Bruno pleads with him. He says, Please, captain. But at that moment, we can see the rage appear on the captain's face. Please? The captain evidently hates manners. Words like, please, sir, and thank you, sir. Bruno is sent back to his quarters, and the dock is disgusted with the captain. Later on, Pulver is alone in his quarters, sitting up on his bunk bed. The room is, as you might expect, adorned in pictures of beautiful women in bathing suits. Bruno comes in. He's looking for the doc. But Pulver invites him to stay for a while. The doc should be by soon. Plus, Pulver is the morale officer, after all. So Bruno agrees, and he takes a seat at the chair by the desk. Pulver wants to take Bruno's mind off of his kid. So Pulver, the doofus that he is, shows Bruno a pistol that he has on board, hands it to him so he can take a look. And then he says, I even got bullets for it. Pulls out the bullets from a case under his mattress, hands them to Bruno too. So now we've got Bruno barely paying attention to a word Pulver is saying, examining the pistol and the bullets, puts the bullets in the gun, takes them back out. And it's so clear what he's thinking. Pulver even shows Bruno one bottle of booze that he managed to sneak aboard because he had it hidden under his shirt. He tells him, you're welcome to it at any time. Even if I'm not here, you want it, you take it. Bruno, suddenly feeling a little better, heads on back to his quarters. Now in comes the doc. He tells Pulver he needs some of that rot gut drink. So he reaches towards the back of the desk, pulls out one glass bottle of clear liquor and one bottle of orange juice. And I really thought this part was funny. This really shows you how great of a comedic actor Walter Matthau is. He takes a swig from the clear liquid, whatever the hell it is, and he swallows it and his eyes are shut tight and he makes this noise. I don't think I could replicate it. It wasn't quite a wince, not quite a gasp. But you could feel the stuff go down. Uh, We've all had experiences where we've taken shots of some really bad alcohol. This moment brought back memories of that. And then he asks Pulver, weren't you able to save any of those bottles? And Pulver responds with, no, no, Doc. Later that evening, the captain has the whole crew come out on deck to watch a film that the captain loves but the rest of the crew has had to sit through about a million times before. An old black and white movie opens. The Warner Brothers logo even comes up at the very beginning. The title comes up, Young Jekyll Meets Frankenstein. 
starring Boris Karloff. Now, I looked this up to see if it was real, and turns out this is not a real movie. It was made specifically for Ensign Pulver, pieced together using scenes from old black and white movies. So while the whole crew, including the doc, is sitting through this picture, the captain, seated up at the back, loving every minute of it, Pulver is down in his quarters. He's looking at some medical books that were sent to him, and that's right when the doc comes in to see him. Pulver has decided he's going to earn the respect of the crew. He's going to become a doctor. But before he does that, he gets another idea. See, Pulver has this little piece of foil with pins sticking out of it about the size of a rock. And he tells the doc he's going to use his slingshot and shoot the captain right in the backside while everyone is watching the movie. Doc is into this idea, so the two of them sneak back out on deck, a ways back behind the captain. So Pulver aims and fires, direct hit. And now all hell breaks loose. An attack has just been made on the ship. The men all scramble to get to their stations. Doc takes the captain to the infirmary, has him lean over the table so he can treat the wound. Dolan comes in, gets on the radio, and reports directly to the captain. And as if there wasn't enough mayhem going on, Pulver had some Japanese fireworks stashed away on deck, which were triggered during all the chaos and began going off, adding to the pandemonium. What's that shooting? Must be Dr. Hyde killing Frankenstein. <laughs> oh. But when they realize that the ship is not, in fact, being attacked... They find out someone on board has taken it upon himself to shoot the captain in the ass. And you can imagine the laughs that ensue. Doc tells Pulver not to tell anybody that he did it, because turns out it really brought up morale. Everybody is thinking that everybody else did it. So they create a pool and everybody puts in a vote for who they think is, as they call it, the great ass assin. They even built this makeshift statue of the great assassin made out of pieces of metal, an old bucket, whatever they can find, with a big old question mark right on the face. They have themselves a party down in the laundry where they're fermenting their own jungle juice, but on this occasion, they call it jungle champagne. And at one point, a very drunk Dolan hops onto the statue's lap like he's Santa Claus. I want a bike train and skates and a woman. But the real climax of the movie comes when Bruno, still distraught over his baby and not being granted leave, can't be found. Turns out he went into Pulver's room and took that gun and the bullets. He finds the captain, pulls the gun on him. He chases the captain out onto the deck. Pulver, who realizes his gun is missing, finds Bruno and wrestles the gun away from him. Meanwhile, the captain falls overboard. Pulver lowers a life raft down, but evidently the captain can't even swim. So Pulver has no choice but to dive into the water to get the captain onto the raft. Pulver and the captain end up being stranded at sea together for four days. And the captain reveals some things about himself during that time. Like why exactly he hates politeness, which was actually pretty telling. They're out there until they both finally pass out from the heat and dehydration. 
until they wash ashore on an island where the natives there take care of them. But while they're missing, Bruno is granted seven days leave to go home to his wife. Now, clearly, the role of Dolan was a bit part for Jack, but definitely a memorable one. He has a really good scene towards the end of the movie. When Pulver and the captain are returned to the ship, the crew stands at attention on deck. The captain announces to the crew that he and Pulver will be answering no questions about the time they were gone. And then suddenly, Dolan shouts from the stairs above the deck. He has a letter in his hand. And excitedly, and I hope I can explain this right, he vaults onto the railings of the stairs with his left leg over the left railing, right leg over the right railing, and he slides all the way down the stairs and lands on his feet into a standing position right in front of the captain. The good news? A letter just arrived saying that Bruno's wife just found out she was pregnant. Cheers and congratulations erupt for Bruno, but the captain is angry because that means Bruno was on leave after the captain refused to grant it to him. When he asks Bruno, how long were you gone? Bruno's response is, long enough. Ensign Pulver, I personally thought was very funny. The director, Joshua Logan, wasn't happy with the final film, and it didn't live up to the same success as the original. But I think it's good when you don't think of it as a sequel. If you view it as just a standalone movie, it holds up by itself. So maybe that's what they should have done. Rather than make a sequel to Mr. Roberts, change the characters' names, change a few details here and there, and make it a story all its own. I think Walter Matthau is hilarious in pretty much anything he does. And Ensign Pulver is very much your early 1960s technicolor lighthearted comedy. I was really happy with it. And Jack manages to stand out in it in only a few scenes. So Jack's next two projects of 1964 really go hand in hand because they were both made by all the same people. Robert Lippert, whose production company, Associated Producers Incorporated, made Thunder Island, was so impressed by Jack's writing on that film that he gave Jack, along with director Monty Hellman and writer John Hackett, $160,000 and $400 a week salary to make two films on location in the Philippines. Those films were Flight to Fury and Backdoor to Hell. So get this. The three travel 28 days by ship from Hawaii to Hong Kong and Japan en route to the Philippines as they worked on both scripts. The two were filmed back to back and were released 10 days apart from each other. First up is Flight to Fury, written by Jack Nicholson, directed by Monty Hellman, and produced by Eddie Romero and Fred Roos. Jack plays Jay Wickham, also starring Dewey Martin as Joe Gaines, Faye Spain as Destiny Cooper. Faye Spain, if you remember, played Helen in 1963's Thunder Island, Vic Diaz as Lorgren, and John Hackett in the role of Al Ross, 
This script was based on an outline by Monty Hellman and Fred Roos, so Jack had the job of adapting it into a script during this 28-day voyage to the Philippines. I had never seen this one before last week. And look, let's all take a second to say, yes, pat ourselves on the back. The positive vibes that I asked for last week worked. The DVD came early from Amazon, and it showed up just two days after last week's episode came out. And I never knew this, but apparently, just in finding a DVD copy of Flight to Fury, I have somehow landed the rarest of unicorns in Jack Nicholson's entire career. Because not only had I never seen it before, turns out almost nobody has because nobody has ever been able to find a copy of it anywhere. But here's what happened. I got the DVD last Friday, pop it into my old hand-me-down DVD player that still somehow works after 20-some-odd years, but it won't play. So I looked at it, and I realized the DVD was shipped from the UK. Media produced in the UK, DVDs, cassettes, and whatnot, are in PAL format. Whereas here in the United States, our DVDs are in NTSC format. I realized this and I'm just like, what do I do? But before panic set in, I realized that even though it can't play on my DVD player, it'll probably still play on my laptop. It did. So although every force in the universe tried to stop me from viewing Flight to Fury and bringing you today's review, I was able to view it and have that for you today. This film is noticeably a low-budget project. It's in grainy black and white, It opens with a man driving a rickshaw through an Asian city. And it's from the point of view of the person riding on the rickshaw. And I can just imagine how they got this shot. I think of the director or someone on the crew paying for a ride on a real rickshaw, propping up a handheld camera as they zoomed through the city. So in the first scene, we see Lorgren and Destiny waiting in a parked car. They're watching something from a distance. They're watching Al Ross make his way onto a docked boat. And the man on the boat very discreetly hands him a pouch. Al slips the pouch into his pocket, and he's on his way again. We first see Jay, Jack's character, at a table at a casino. He's chatting up a man who doesn't really seem interested. That man is Joe Gaines. Eventually, Jay invites Joe to have a scotch with him over at the bar. And Joe takes him up on it. So the two men are at the bar. They're shooting the breeze. Joe says he's from Scranton, Pennsylvania. Jay says he's from Beaver Falls, Idaho. Then on the other side of the casino, Joe sees a woman. So he excuses himself from the bar and goes to talk to her. He goes up to her, says he knows he's seen her before, and asks her if she's a friend of Alvin Ross. She says yes, she knows Mr. Ross. Turns out Al Ross is a friend of Joe Gaines. So Joe invites the woman to come and have a drink. She accepts the invitation, 
and she introduces herself as Leiling Forsyth. But when they get back to the bar, Jay is gone. Joe was relying on Jay buying this next round, but it doesn't stop the two from having one together. After the first drink, Joe suggests to Lei Ling that she could invite him up to her room for a drink, and she smiles back at him. So the next scene, Joe is in Lei Ling's room, and he's getting into the shower. Lei Ling lies on the bed, smoking a cigarette. She shouts to Joe and asks if he likes some coffee. It's a very laid-back scene. She gets up off the bed, checks herself in the mirror, starts the coffee pot, then heads over to the closet, opens the curtain, and... As soon as she opens the curtain, Jay is standing there, holding up what looks like a scarf or some piece of material, ready to strangle her. It's a pretty good jump scare. I jumped when I saw him. Next scene, Joe is being questioned at the police station. The cop believes him when he says he doesn't know what happened, but he tells Joe to remain in the city. Joe gets back to his hotel, and Jay is in Joe's room. He says he wanted to know what happened with the girl. Joe tells him she's dead. Jay says he knows she's dead. He just wanted to know what happened. See if there's anything he could do. At first, Joe tells him to just forget about it. But then he asks Jay a favor. He tells him to go see Al Ross at the Red Sail and tell him that he wants to leave tonight. And he'll meet him just before takeoff. That night, Joe makes it to the plane as planned. And Jay follows Joe onto the plane, unbeknownst to Joe. We find out from Al who is piloting the plane, that when Jay relayed the message that Joe wanted to leave tonight, he added in that Joe wanted Jay to meet him on the plane too. So Joe is just exasperated with Jay. After they take off, he has Jay come to the back of the plane to talk to him. He says to stop following him around, whatever his reasons are, because this is where it stops. Jay says okay, returns to his seat, He's seated next to this young woman, and to make conversation, he asks her the most bizarre question. He says, do you know anything about death? And she's interested. The two of them start having a whole back and forth about death, what it is, and sort of the inevitability of it. I really started to feel like if I didn't already recognize Jay as Jack Nicholson, who I love, I would be intensely creeped out by this character. He skeeved me out so much in this particular role. He even has the look down. He's got this really thin mustache. Such an ominous character that we, the audience, already know to be the villain because we know that he murdered Lei Ling, but nobody in the movie knows that. Also on the plane are Lorgren and Destiny. Lorgren dozes off during the flight and Destiny takes this opportunity to go back and sit next to Joe. After just barely a few words, she starts kissing him passionately. She returns to her seat like this is just something that she does all the time. And then finally, one passenger goes into the lavatory. He's in there washing his hands, and suddenly there's a loud bang, and the whole plane jolts. The girl seated next to Jay has been knocked out, 
There's panic. Nobody knows what's going on. The plane goes in for a crash landing. After the crash happens, Joe is not hurt. He gets up into the cockpit and Al is hurt bad. He says his chest hurts. He tells Joe to find his case and take the pouch. He was smuggling diamonds. That's why Leiling was murdered. Whoever was in her room was looking for that pouch. And with that, Al dies. Jay asks Joe if he's all right. The girl has died. Outside of the plane, Lorgren has a broken leg. Destiny does not appear hurt. Lorgren tells Destiny to find those diamonds. Destiny goes onto the plane to look, but when she goes back inside the plane, she sits in one of the seats and lights up a cigarette. So with Joe leading the way, they all start walking, looking for some kind of civilization. Lorgren knows that Joe has the pouch. When they stop to rest, Lorgren pulls his gun on Joe and tells Destiny to search him. Joe, not having any time for any of these people, comments to Destiny, You have a soft touch. Destiny finds the pouch, hands it over to Lorgren. They continue walking, Lorgren keeping an eye on Joe the whole time. But what they don't know is, after they left the wreck site, a gang of natives came and searched the plane, and when they found no one there, they began to follow in the group's direction. So the group is ambushed by this gang, and they're all brought somewhere all together in a hut. No windows or any way to see out. Joe confronts Jay while they're all trapped together, asks him why he didn't tell him that he was also carrying a gun. Jay says, well, Lorgren didn't tell you either. Joe says, well, I'm talking to you. But while none of them like it, nobody trusts anybody, they realize if they're going to get out of there alive, they're going to have to band together. Two guards come in through the door, and that's when they attack. They take the guards' guns, and a shootout ensues. Jay pulls a gun on Lorgren, tells him to give him the diamonds. And as Joe runs over in their direction, Jay is briefly distracted, and Lorgren attempts to hit Jay with his crutch. But Jay turns and shoots Lorgren. Then he grabs Destiny and puts the gun to her head, telling Joe to be smart and drop his gun. Joe drops his gun. Jay keeps stepping backward. Then he shoves Destiny away, and when she tries to run, Jay shoots her in the back. So Joe picks up his gun and he takes off after Jay. Joe shoots at Jay, hits him in the left shoulder, and in the final scene, the two of them are on a cliff by a river, and they're yelling to each other, guns in hand. Jay offers to split the diamonds with Joe 50-50, but Joe sneaks up on Jay, fires, and hits him again, and as Jay is able to barely crawl away, he takes the diamonds and tosses them into the river. And then we hear Jay say, you can't kill me, Joe. And we hear a gunshot off screen. Joe comes down to where Jay is laying, looks down on him, and he sits, and he waits, presumably for the gang to catch up with him again, and whatever might be waiting for him. Flight to Fury had much more adventure than Thunder Island. It didn't take as long for the action to get started. So with this being Jack's 
second screenwriting credit, I think you can really see how he grew as a writer in that time. And this bears repeating. Jack's character, Jay Wickham, genuinely made me feel uncomfortable. He was creepy and gross. And you can tell from the first scene that there's just something not to be trusted about him. So I was impressed with this one. If you can find it, first of all, make sure you know what region it's coming from. But I would recommend searching Amazon for the DVD and see it for yourself. Our next film, Backdoor to Hell, was an easy find. It can be found in its entirety on YouTube. As I mentioned, it was released just 10 days after Flight to Fury on November 15, 1964. Directed by Monty Hellman, produced by Fred Roos, and written by John Hackett during that 28-day trip to the Philippines. The script was actually a rewrite of one of Robert Lippert's existing screenplays. The movie takes place during World War II in the Philippines in 1944. Jack plays Burnett, John Hackett plays Jersey, and singer Jimmy Rogers stars in the movie as Lieutenant Craig. As the movie opens, the three men are on a raft, and they reach the shore at Lujan, Philippines. They're searching for a fellow soldier named McGill, but they come upon Paco, played by Conrad Maga, who leads a group of guerrilla fighters. Paco claims that McGill is dead. He tortured him before he killed him. But the three men need the help of this group. So Paco agrees, and he begins to lead them through the wilderness. As they head onward, Burnett and Jersey talk about death, which I thought was a bit reminiscent of back in Flight to Fury, the conversation that Jay Wickham struck up with the girl on the plane. Point of curiosity, are they our friends or are we their prisoners? What difference does it make? What difference does it make? Yeah, we're all going to die anyway. Tomorrow, next week, 30 years from now, would that little thought ever penetrate your thick skull? Yeah, once when I was a boy, but naturally I dismissed it as being too outrageous. Along with the group of gorillas is Maria, who is in love with Paco. She reveals to Lieutenant Craig that Paco's wife and child were killed. Lieutenant Craig has a revelation that it explains a lot about Paco as a person. Paco receives word that the Japanese secret police have found out that the three Americans are on the island. And they say that they will execute one child over at the school every hour that the three men remain free. So they make their way to the center of town to make it look as though Paco is about to hand them over to the Japanese police. But then gunfire erupts and a battle ensues. A few of the Japanese are killed and several others are taken captive. So they manage to save the children from certain death without a single one of them being harmed. However, during this battle, Lieutenant Craig hesitates and he lets two of the Japanese escape. There is something about World War II movies, and really any war movie for that matter, that when you see these events unfold, I feel like part of you questions for a second, what would you do if you were in the same circumstances? That evening, the men are out having a drink, and Burnett and Jersey are sitting together, and Jersey says to Burnett, you know, I think the lieutenant is cracking under the pressure. And see, Jersey is a true cynic. 
He's seen a lot of this war and clearly seen a lot of death by this point. So it's like he's able to not feel, turn off his feelings and just do the job that he was sent to do without having any emotion. The following day, a leader of a group of bandits named Ramundo offers to give the men information about the Japanese troops' movements in exchange for their radio. But they can't agree to that right away because they still need their radio to send information on Japanese movements that Paco was able to obtain for them by torturing the captives. So Ramundo responds by shooting their radio, and he runs. So now, left without a radio, the Americans decide the only choice they have is to sneak into a Japanese shortwave station so Burnett can transmit the information through Morse code. After they make their way in, and the information is being sent, another battle erupts. This time it's deadly. Burnett is killed as he continues communicating through the Japanese radio. Jersey takes Burnett's body, hoists him over his shoulder. After the battle, Lieutenant Craig, alongside Jersey, with Burnett over his shoulders, continue onward to find the rest of the guerrillas. The lieutenant tells Jersey he's dead. Jersey says, I know, but I couldn't just leave him there. I'll put him down by the river. He doesn't know where he is but I'll know he's there. So maybe there is some feeling left in Jersey's heart after all. So they find Maria and some of the other guerrillas, and they ask her where is Paco and the others. She tells him that Paco was killed in the battle too. The lieutenant puts his head down. Maria asks him, what do we do now? Lieutenant just answers, we'll figure something and the movie comes to an end. The ending leaves you with a lot of questions. We don't know what they're going to do next. And really, I would think that that's a good representation of being in a war. There really is no clear beginning, middle, and end, is there? So I was left feeling uneasy. And I think that that was intentional on the part of the writers. Backdoor to Hell is a somber piece, but I found myself invested in the characters. So I would encourage you to watch it for yourself on YouTube and see what kind of feelings it draws up in you. Does it make you think about war or what soldiers in combat have to go through on a daily basis and what choices they're forced to make? And with this being the last of three pictures that Jack worked on in 1964, you can begin to see why the work started picking up for him. There's been some diversity now. He's doing comedies, he's wrote and starred in a suspense thriller, and he's played a fallen soldier in a war drama. The work would keep coming in 1965 through 1966. Next week, I'll have two new reviews for you of Jack's work in 1966 two westerns and i'm giving them a chance i was surprised by the broken land and i'm hoping the next two will have the same effect on me we'll be talking about the shooting and ride in the whirlwind until then follow you don't know jack on social media you don't know jack podcast on facebook and instagram 
If you liked what you heard today, please leave me a review so other fellow Jack Nicholson fanatics can find this podcast and put it in their ears too. And be on the lookout the day after this episode is released for my newest blog entry. You Don't Know Jack is a production of Clovercrest Media Group. Visit clovercrestmedia.com and discover some other great original podcasts. We've got true crime, we've got sports, we've got politics, social issues, whatever you're into for your listening pleasure. Until next time, I'm Sarah Dimio, and this has been You Don't Know Jack. <laughs>